0: Ecclesiology is the doctrine of the church because it's such a big topic, ecclesiology. Ecclesiology comes from a Greek word, ecclesia, which you may be familiar with because ecclesia is the word that's used over a hundred times in the New Testament because it's a Greek word and it's typically translated church. I think there's a couple times it's translated assembly and then there's, I think, one time where it's translated congregation. By the way, this would be kind of a free point, and it may be one that we wind up exploring further when we get into Ephesians chapter 3. But it's very interesting to me, and I don't think it's by accident, that out of a hundred uses of the word ecclesia, there are only three times it ever occurs in the Gospels. Four Gospels, which comprise a large part of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark, Luke, and John never use the word ecclesia. Matthew does three times in two different occasions. Uh, One of them is probably a very familiar and famous passage where Jesus turns to Peter and say, Thou art Peter, but upon this rock uh, I will build my church. That's the first use of church. So it's very interesting to me that it occurs so rarely in the Gospels, especially given the fact that Luke wrote one Gospel, and then when he writes his second volume, Acts of the Apostles, he mentions the church some 20 times, but not in his gospel. I don't think that's by accident. I think that's because the church, as we know it, theologically, didn't occur until Pentecost. That's my contention. Ecclesia, the church. It's a compound word. It comes from ek, which means out from or from. And then the second part is from a verb, kaleo, which means to call. So, at a very rudimentary, simple, basic level, the church has been called out from. Called out from the world. Called out from, if you were a Jew, called out from Old Covenant Judaism. Called out from, uh, if you're a Gentile, come... Coming called out from whatever it is you identified with previously, you're called out from that by God into something new, is what Ephesians says. It's a new man. It's a new thing you're called out from. So the idea of the church, it's not just a verb that you're, it's movement, because there is movement, you're called out from something, so there's movement taking place, but it's also where you land is an assembly, it's a group, it's a it's a gathering. So it's a called out from by God into this assembly, this gathering together, that's the church, that's the church. J. Vernon McGee from nineteen, lived from 1904 to 1988. Pastor, says theologian. Uh, he was a very homespun kind of a theologian. Uh, radio broadcast pioneer, which is certainly the case. Uh, he was definitely a pioneer in Christian radio. And what is so phenomenal about J. Vernon McGee is that he's been dead now for 34 years. And I think any, just about any Christian radio station that is in existence still carries his program. Now, it may not be on at prime listening hours, but it's still in the mix 34 years later. They still pray, play his Through the Bible broadcast, which is an amazing thing because that is not true of very many individuals. J. Vernon McGee, in his... Uh, in this going through the Bible, I'm going to play his Introduction to Ephesians. And it's a 30-minute message. I'm obviously not going to play 30 minutes. I've reduced it to about two and a half minutes. So there's a lot of missing parts. There's not a lot of detail in here. But I thought, a lot of you people have never listened to J. Vernon McGee, probably. And so this is kind of a flashback to the past. And for others, they're like, I wish we still had people like Jay Vernon McGee. That, you know, that, that's right up my alley. But J. Vernon McGee, he's going to kind of refer to, uh, he's he's in his introduction to Ephesians, he's referring to a group of letters written by Paul. They're called the prison epistles. Paul wrote them when he was imprisoned or under house arrest. He wasn't free to do everything that he wanted. He wasn't going on any missionary journeys during this time. So these four letters were Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and, and Philemon. He wrote those four letters, gave those four letters to four different individuals who had some roots in each of the places they were going. Philemon uh, was sent by a slave who ran away from Philemon. His name was Onesimus, I think, as I recall. The other three letters, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philippians, all had a, a contact from that church that Paul delivered his letter and the four went out. So that gives you a little bit of a... A context as to what J. Vernon McGee is about to say, I will also mention that J. Vernon McGee is looking at Ephesians through the lens of the church. Uh, Ephesians is very much a church letter. Uh, the topic of the church is front and central in Ephesians, but it's not necessarily always the most important thing in Ephesians. Like in Ephesians chapter 1, he's going to Break down the six chapters. In Ephesians chapter 1, he will say, The church is presented as the body of Christ. Which is true, but that's not the most important thing in Ephesians chapter 1. That's just a a subplot. But if you're going to look at Ephesians through the lens of the church, what does this mean to the church? That's a valid point. So here's two and a half minutes of J. Vernon
1: McGee.
0: the, Lord laid your in word. He
1: the Alps say of the New Testament, as how scholars have described the New Testament book of Ephesians. Welcome to Through the Bible. I'm your host, Steve Schwetz, welcoming you aboard the Bible bus as we set off for a new and exciting journey through the high peaks of the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. Now these epistles present a composite picture of Christ, the church, the Christian life, and the interrelationship and functioning of all. These different facets present the Christian life on the highest plane, by the way. Now Ephesians, the one that we're going to take up, presents the church which is his body. This is the invisible church, of which Christ is the head. And Colossians presents Christ, the head of the body, the church. You see, in Ephesians, the emphasis is upon the body. Dr. Arthur Pearson called Ephesians Paul's third heaven epistle. Another's called it the Alps of the New Testament. It's the Mount Whitney of the High Sierras Of all Scripture, it is the church epistle. Now, there are six chapters here. The first three chapters, you have the heavenly calling of the church. This is the doctrinal side. In the last three chapters, you have the earthly conduct of the church, which is very practical. Now, in chapter 1, it's very logical, the church is a body. Chapter 1. Chapter 2, the church is a temple. And then chapter 3, the church is a mystery. Now, these are the three chapters of doctrine. Now, when you come down to the practical part in chapter 4, the church is a new man. That is, the church is to exhibit something new in the world, walking through the world as a new man. Then you have, in chapter 5, the church will be a bride then the church is a soldier of Jesus Christ. That's chapter 6.
0: So that's his take on the six chapters, which is kind of an interesting way to look at Ephesians, and is certainly not wrong. But he makes the point that the first three chapters are doctrinal, and the second three chapters are practical. That's a point that I've made in the past, talking about Ephesians. Pretty much any commentary is going to make the same point up with a lot of doctrine, and then it moves into a lot of, now what do you do with what I've just told you? Another way to look at it, which is something that he referred to, is that the first three chapters are kind of viewed from a heavenly vantage point. The church, how does God look at the church? What has God done for the church? And then the second three chapters are, now the church's conduct on earth. So you've got a heavenly viewpoint of the church, you've got a, but the church is here on the earth, what are we to do with this? Uh, That's another way to look at it. A third way to look at it uh, would be terms maybe a little less familiar. This would be something that Martin Luther would have said, or actually he did say, as well as others, that the first three chapters are filled with indicatives and the last three chapters are filled with imperatives. Now, an indicative mood in Greek is stressing something that is true. It's stressing the reality of something. It's stressing something that God has done in Ephesians. The second three chapters, imperatives, are commands. So it starts off with God saying, here's what I've done. You know, fasten your seatbelt. I'm going to let you know what I'm in charge of, what I've done. And then it moves into, now here's what you should do in light of what I've done. So imperatives, commands, always follow indicatives. Eugene Peterson wrote, it's not technically a commentary on Ephesians. It's based on Ephesians. It's kind of devotional writing, uh, but it's not verse by verse. Uh, he'll skip over things. It's, it's just a, a thematic book on the book of Ephesians. It's entitled Practice Resurrection. And he makes a very important point about the church based upon the way the, the uh, the uh, the six chapters of Ephesians are divided up. He writes this. Paul wants us to understand church first of all and primarily in terms of ontology, which means its being, not its function. There are, of course, functions. Things happen. Things are done. There are jobs to do. There are commands to be obeyed. But if we don't grasp the church as Christ's body, we will always be misguided. That's a phenomenal point. Because the church, if you're going to define the church or describe the church, it has to start with what God has done, not with what we do. We don't decide what the church is. The church only exists because of who God is and what God has done to make the church the church. Our most, you know, sometimes in uh, graduation speeches, commencement speeches, a speaker will say, remind people, you are human beings, not human doings, because we always have all these ideas of things we want to do, things we want to achieve, things we want to accomplish. But God didn't create us human doings. He created us human beings. Our value comes from who we are being created by God. The church's value comes not in what we do. It comes in who we are because what God has made us. It starts with our being, ontology, which is the basis of those first three chapters. If I throw out the the first three chapters and say, just tell me what to do, I'm apt to wind up with what Paul describes in Romans chapter 10 and verse 2, where he says of Israel, they have zeal, they're ready to do something. But without knowledge, you've got to start with the knowledge of what God has said is true. The the uh, not the imperatives, but the indicatives, the things that only God can do. And we need to know those things so that then we know how to follow the imperatives that will follow, must follow, necessarily follow. But it starts with what only God can do. So, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 to 22, you're going to find that on page 977 if you're using a pew Bible. Here's where we've been. It'll be a little bit shorter review. In in, uh, chapter 2, Paul explains what the Gentiles' life and prospects were before Christ and how everything changed for the better because of God's grace and in light of Christ's crucifixion. That sums up Ephesians chapter 2. Here's what you were, here's what you are now in light of God's grace, in light of Christ's crucifixion. Three main points so far in Ephesians chapter 2. Number one, you have life. You have life. He told us in in the first 10 verses, the essence was, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You weren't always alive. You were spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. It evidenced itself in the way that you walked. But God has made you alive. So the first emphasis is life. The second emphasis is nearness. Nearness. And here we find out that Christ brought Gentiles near by making them insiders and participants of what God had been doing all along for Israel. What God had been doing all along in Israel. What God had been doing all along through Israel. They weren't always insiders. They weren't always participants. But God has brought them near so that now they're not outsiders, they're insiders. They're not excluded, they're included. In the way that God had been dealing with Israel all through what we know as the Old Testament Scriptures. The third emphasis is an emphasis of peace. And that is, Christ ended the hostility that had existed between Jews and Gentiles. And Christ ended the hostility that existed between all sinners and God. And by ending that hostility, it established or resulted in peace. Ending hostility, bringing peace. A big emphasis where we've been the last couple of weeks in Ephesians. We broke it down last week. Christ accomplished this peace by doing three things. He ended the hostility by doing three things. Number one, he abolished the Mosaic Law Covenant. Um, I probably, if I were doing my own English translation of the Bible, I probably wouldn't use the word abolish. I probably would use he rendered inactive, he nullified. But I'm not going to fault the ESV people for using the word abolished because we looked at last week when Christ died on the cross bringing to a fulfillment and end of Omay's Mosaic Law. God ripped open the curtain from top to bottom in the most holy place, signifying, we're done with that, we're moving on. We're moving into a new covenant. We're no longer, uh, Christ is the end of the law for all those that have attained righteousness in him by faith. So, the peace is accomplished by abolishing the Mosaic Law Covenant. Followed by creating one new man or one new body, which I understand to be what we call, what we know as the church. And then the third thing is he reconciles both Jews and Gentiles to God. He abolishes something to create something. And then he takes those Jews and Gentiles and reconciles them to God within this thing, this entity, this body called the church. Now... I realize I just went through that really fast, but that's where we've been about three weeks. So any one of those points is uh, taken a lot slower if you want to go back and listen to previous audio messages. Now we're going to build on that. The result of what Christ did is through him, we both, Jews and Gentiles, those who were near, the Jews, and those who were far away, the Gentiles, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That's the point on which we ended last week. Now we start this week, it reads like this. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, In Him you also were being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He starts off with, so then. So, Christ abolished that one thing, He created that other new thing, and He reconciled us both to God, so then, here's the result of that. Here's the end of that. Here's the point of all that. Here's the objective of all that. So then, you are no longer what you once were. He already made it clear in Ephesians chapter 2. You were once those things. You were strangers. You were aliens. You were without God. You were without hope. All those things were true. You weren't looking for the God who created the heavens and the earth. You were worshipping the heavens. And you were worshipping things that you fashioned by yourselves on the earth. But God made all the difference. He gave us life. He brought us near. And He established peace. So... So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but here's what you are. Here's the change that's taken place. He gives us three metaphors to help us understand God's end in accomplishing all that he's done in Ephesians chapter 2. Even back in Ephesians chapter 1. The three metaphors are this. Number one, you're citizens. Number two... You're part of a household. You're members of a household. And number three, you're part of a temple. So there's three metaphors, which if this were an English grammar class, I'm sure Paul would have not have scored well on this particular letter to mix up that many metaphors in such short a space. But he does under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So it must be okay. Let's look at those one at a time. Number one, you are fellow citizens With the saints. This is a huge upgrade over what any Gentile would have known under the Old Testament Mosaic law. Because under Old Testament Mosaic law, to become a proselyte, to get near to God, you could only get so near under the best of circumstances. But you had to be circumcised and you had to place yourself under the law of Moses. This is a huge upgrade. Because now you're you're not that kind of a member of this citizenship, of this commonwealth your fellow citizens with the saints. That citizenship is citizenship within the kingdom of God, which is the, one of the prevailing themes over all of Scripture, under which the church falls. The kingdom of God created the church. The church is not the equivalent of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God creates the church. The church is the expression of the kingdom of God on earth now. The church has replaced Israel in that regard, and that Israel no longer is charged with the duty of reflecting the principles of the kingdom of God as the light of the world. That has now been entrusted to the church. So we are citizens of something. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. This is the same citizenship needed by every Jew. And that is very clear in the gospels. You can't help but miss it. And for time's sake, I'm not going to look at both references. I will only refer you to the second one. I'll just, uh, I'll give you the short version of the first, the first passage, which this, uh, these two people talking, you probably can figure out who that was. But in case you couldn't, that's Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter 3. So we won't look at that passage, but Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. He wants to have a very spiritual conversation or have some sort of a conversation. And Jesus immediately directs Nicodemus's attention to the topic of the kingdom of God. And in those first five verses, I don't have how many verses on there, but in the first five verses, he tells Nicodemus two things. You can't even... Make sure I get this right. You cannot even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And then he follows it up with, You can't enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again or born from above. It's kind of, uh, could be taken different ways what that concept of being born again or born from above is. It certainly means to be born of the Spirit, to be born of the Spirit of God in the context. So he tells Nicodemus, who who's a Jew. He's not only a Jew, he's an upstanding Jew. In fact, he's a teacher within Israel. People call him teacher within Israel. He has a a spiritual hunger and longing to know the truth. And I think he he has some interest in the kingdom of God. It's fair from the conversation. Jesus says, unless you're born from above, born of the spirit, you can't enter it. You can't even see it. In Jesus' day, every Jew needed to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. He was a citizen of Israel, which was a privileged position. That's fair. They had the patriarchs. They had the prophets. They had the kings. They had the priests. They had the temple. They had the scriptures. They had all those advantages. But it didn't gain them entrance into the kingdom of God. Apart from birth by God's spirit. The second passage I do want you to turn to because I think it's so so fitting of this general context. It's Luke chapter 13. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 873. Luke chapter 15. Turn to the second passage. And, and you could go through the Gospels and highlight every time it talks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. I think those terms are equivalent. Luke chapter 13. What Jesus says there highlights how important it is to be a part of this kingdom, to have citizenship in this kingdom. Luke chapter 13, I guess for context, I'm going to back up to verse 22. Thirteen twenty-two reads like this. Jesus went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord... Will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer answer you, I do not know where you came from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence. And you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets where? In the kingdom of God that you yourselves cast out. In fact, verse 29... And people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. The point of that passage is how essential it is to have citizenship in this thing called the kingdom of God. And just because you're a Jew, just because you're a teacher in Israel, just because you memorized whatever you memorized, that doesn't automatically qualify you for citizenship within the kingdom of God. Abraham's there. Isaac's there. Jacob's there. The prophets are there. But there's going to be lots within Israel that are knocking on the door saying, how could we not be there? We know who Jesus was. He, He ate and drank in our streets. We heard him teach. And Jesus will say... I never I don't know where you come from. But there will be some from north and south and east and west that are part of this kingdom, which is what Paul's referring to when he says you're going to be fellow citizens with the saints, with the prophets, with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, with David. You're going to be fellow citizens with them. Fellow citizens, not second class citizens, not like in 1984 and you've got the the outside group and the inside group, you're fellow citizens. In the kingdom of God. It's an already not yet proposition. What is the kingdom of God? It is already here. But not yet in completion. Not yet in fulfillment. So that in the gospels, in the Bible, you can read aspects where it talks about the kingdom of God is here. How could you miss it? But we still pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're still praying for a future aspect of the kingdom. And this, I know not everybody cares about some of the doctoral distinctions, but traditional dispensationalism, their points against, I'll say, well, I won't make it a denominational thing, but traditional dispensationalists will say, the kingdom's not here, whoops, the kingdom's not here yet, it's future, and they can point to future passages, and they're right. And then the traditional covenant people will be like, but I can show you passages that say it's already here, and they're right too. Because it is here now, But it's not yet here in its completion, and it won't be until Christ comes back at the second advent in power and glory. Then it will be at its completed state. It's here now, it's to be enjoyed now, it's to be lived now, but it's not yet here in its culmination or its final state. The second image is members of the household of God. Now, we've, we've automatically moved now from citizenship, which... Uh, kind of suggests you've got one ruler, you've got one set of laws, you've got a set of privileges, responsibilities, you're all part of this one kingdom. Now we're talking about a household which is much more familiar It's much more warm. It's much more inviting. It's a different image. It's meant to be a different image. He doesn't give us a lot of background on this image, but I would suggest two things if you want to consider. What does it mean to be a member of God's household? I think it's similar to what Paul emphasized in verse 18. Through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. Just because you're a citizen of a kingdom doesn't mean you have access to the king. I'm a citizen of the United States. I can't go down to the White House, uh, open the front door, and have access to the president. I don't have that kind of access. Well, I could say I'm a citizen. It doesn't make any difference. But a child, there was all these wonderful stories about when John F. Kennedy was president and his son Jack would dance around or play around uh, the president's White House desk because he had access to the president. He was his son, it was it was that kind of a relationship. Here, we have this idea of, I'm not only a citizen of this wonderful kingdom of God, I have access to the King. I have access to God the Father, which which kind of suggests what's taught in Galatians chapter 4. We cry out, Abba, Father. He's our Father. He's not just our King. He's our Father as well. So two images together give us a more complete picture of of what Gentiles have now that they didn't have before. Fellow citizens. Access to God Almighty Himself. The Jews would have said, wait a second, we lived how many centuries? And only one man on one day a year ever had access? And now you're saying you have access to the one that we didn't have access to? And... Paul would say, well, by faith in Christ, you have the same access. He's your father too. You can cry, Abba, Father. The access is for Jew and Gentile alike. It's for all who have faith in Christ. What a wonderful image. The third image is that of a holy temple. That of a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It tells us Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. So this temple has a cornerstone, it has a foundation. The foundation is mentioned first, but it's very clear in Paul's letters, if you put them together, it's not hard to figure out. The most important thing about this temple isn't the foundation, it's the cornerstone. It all starts with a cornerstone. Christ is the cornerstone of the temple. Uh, Christ Jesus himself, which is uh, in the Greek that's emphasized, it's Born out by the fact that it says Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. It's not just, oh, and Christ Jesus, it's Christ Jesus himself. Who could it be? Who else could it be? There's none other that was qualified to be a cornerstone of this temple. He himself is our peace. He himself is our cornerstone. So it starts with that cornerstone. But then the foundation is a foundation built upon the apostles and the prophets. Apostles, I take in its highest sense, there were 12 apostles. Plus one. Paul calls himself an apostle born out of due time. An apostle had to be perfectly instructed and taught by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. An apostle had to be a witness of the Lord's resurrection. Paul was all those things. He wasn't instructed and taught by the Lord Jesus Christ along with the other 12 But he was caught up into the third heaven where he was instructed and taught by Christ, personally. And he was a witness of the Lord's resurrection. So there are 13 apostles in the highest sense, and those apostles are entrusted with delivering the message of the church, the message of the new covenant, the message of what this means for Gentiles. They are charged with that message. The apostles. An apostle means one sent forth, by the way. It's one sent forth as a representative of the one sending. An authorized representative. It's used in lesser senses as well. The churches in the, in uh, the New Testament on two occasions, the churches sent messengers. It's the same word apostle. They're messengers of the churches. They represent the church. If, uh, if our church, uh, sent out a, call it a missionary to a a particular land. In some sense, he's an apostle. He's a messenger of our church. He's authorized to represent us as he takes the gospel to another place. But these apostles are not the lesser sense. It's in the highest sense. They are the found. We're not still working on the foundation of the church. That was laid 2000 years ago. And then you've also got following the apostles. You've got those that are named prophets. Uh, these prophets, uh, what the word literally, or what they do, is a prophet speaks an inspired and infallible message, inspired words. A prophet is backing up or assisting or coming alongside the apostles. We start with the apostles. The prophets come next because there's only thirteen apostles, and by the time where we're at in Acts, we've already lost one. Uh, there will be more that lose their lives in uh, I don't know the time period how how each one lost his life, but it happened. The prophets came along, and they are also delivering an inspired message of God to the church. The New Testament has not been written yet. I think that's an important point. It's also very important, the way I understand it, is these are inspired messages. I am not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. I have never met a prophet. A prophet speaks an inspired and infallible message. Second Peter chapter one, verse twenty one makes that point. Holy men of God spoke, spake, I want to say it like the old King James, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah is a great example in the Old Testament. There are many in the Old Testament, but Jeremiah is a great example where the Lord calls Jeremiah to be his prophet. And Jeremiah says, I can't be your prophet, I'm too young. And I think he complains about, like, I, I would not know what to say. And the Lord says, don't worry, you're a prophet. And a prophet means I'm going to put my words in your mouth. And you're going to say what I tell you to say. That's a prophet. So that in the New Testament, as you read, especially in Corinthians, the question is not whether this, this is a prophet speaking an inspired message. That's what a prophet does. The question is, is he a true prophet or a false prophet? Because if it is determined, if it is judged, this is a true prophet, the message is inspired. You don't get to dice it up and pick and choose the parts you like and don't like. If it's, an, if it's a prophet of the Lord, the message is 100% valid. You can write it down and add it to scripture. That's a huge stumbling block for me believing there could possibly be a prophet in our day and age. If that message is recorded and it's a prophet of the Lord, it's inspired. Write it down, add books to the scripture. Because there's the Bible knows no other kind of prophet from the Lord. All right. So we've got number one, apostles. Number two, these are New Testament prophets, not Old Testament prophets. Uh, the the uh, Zondervan... Exp- I forget the name of the commentary. It's called the... Uh, The Zondervan exegetical commentary makes the point, which several do, Uh, the vast majority of interpreters correctly understand Paul to be referring to the apostles and prophets of the first century church. We're not talking here about Old Testament prophets. They were not laying the foundation of the church until... uh, That couldn't be laid until the chief cornerstone is set, which is Christ. These are New Testament prophets. It's not by accident. They follow the the apostles. The foundation is apostles followed by prophets. And all of that is contingent on the cornerstone being laid, which is Christ. These are New Testament prophets. I'm going to give you a couple examples of that. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3, which is super easy, because it's, I don't know if it's over a page in your Bible or not, it's awfully close. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul writes these words. For this reason... as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. It's the same order with the same intention. We are now teaching and and communicating something that was not made known to previous generations, but now is through the apostles and the prophets. By the Spirit, this mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, And partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the message entrusted to the church. And it started with a foundation of the apostles and prophets teaching exactly that message. Same thing uh, is similar, or a similar thing is found in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 to 11. Reads this way. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord. He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave, having ascended, speaking of Christ, having ascended, verse 11, and he gave the apostles, he gave the prophets, he gave the evangelists, he gave the shepherds and teachers, or pastors and teachers, I think the context of Ephesians makes it clear the prophets here are prophets that are establishing the foundation of this new thing created by Christ, this new body called the church. The application here is, I could hardly emphasize it strong enough, any church that does not have a foundation of Christ and apostolic doctrine in teaching is no church of God's. It just isn't. We don't get to reinvent what is important in the church. We don't get to decide what things look like for ourselves. A church that belongs to Christ has one cornerstone, and it has one foundation which was laid 2,000 years ago. Our job is to be true to that foundation that was laid, and to, to continue to build on that foundation, but not to the exclusion or not to ignore or to try to change that found we don't need foundation work done in the in the church of God. All right, so he talks about the whole structure being joined together. Uh, that everybody that's a part of Christ's church is part of this single structure. There's unity. There's cohesion in this church. I think once in a while on the church sign, I've put out the saying. Uh, I don't really know who first said it, but in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Within the church of God, we don't have to agree on every fine point of doctrine. I'm wrong about some things, you're wrong about some things, but on the essentials, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, we're saved by grace through faith, to the glory of God alone, through Christ alone, those are non-negotiables. So this whole structure is joined together. There's not a Western church and an Eastern church. There's not a Protestant church and a Catholic church. If you belong to the only church that matters, you are part of one single structure. And then he also tells us this whole structure is growing into a holy temple. That is, it's still being added to. It's not finished yet. Uh, This structure is not complete. If it were complete, Christ would come back in power and glory and the bride of Christ would be complete and presented before him. But it's not. And so the church, the structure is still being added to piece by piece, brick by brick, stone by stone. And Paul then finishes with, in him, because of Christ, in him, you also, you Gentiles, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Right alongside the Jews. Right alongside every One of every person who has faith in Christ, you're all joined together and it's growing, it's building. The whites had a son, I forget which one it was, but they were part of a church, they called themselves living stones, whatever it was, and I always thought that was such a terrific name. Living stones. It kind of comes from the imagery here and even more specifically, imagery from Peter's letter. That we are living stones. We are part of a vibrant, real body that extends through centuries of time. And and we are brought together in Christ into this holy temple. It's not a temple like a, that can be touched. It's a temple of God's people assembling together. That's what we are part of. And Gentiles are included right alongside. As no less than any other Jew that is part of this temple. Any Jew that is part of this church. What a glorious finish. What are your comments and questions for the end of chapter 2? We'll be set for chapter 3 in a couple weeks. Theron, I consider Matthias to be number 12, Paul was number 13. So, Matthias would, yeah, I consider that completely legitimate. He was a replacement as one of the 12 apostles of Israel. He replaced Judas, the one who was the betrayer, uh, and Christ knew that. So, Matthias became number 12, Paul then was one born out of due time, he became number 13, apostle to the Gentiles. Good question. Somebody else? Yes? Uh, I'm going to go with no, uh, because it means assembly. It means a, an assembly or a congregation. So I think in, I, I could check it out pretty easily, but I think in secular Greek culture, that would not be a new term. I think that would be, that would be a term they would be familiar with. But so far as the Bible's concerned, the way it uses the term, uh, it really doesn't start turning up other than those three places in Matthew. It doesn't really explode on the scene until Acts. Uh, so this is a new thing in Acts. Right, and in fact, that's even back in, in the day huh, when we started Ephesians. It's it's really a letter that was written to God's people. Sometimes, the, sometimes Paul talks about the saints or the saints at a place, but it wasn't written exclusively to the Ephesians. It just started there. So in some early manuscripts, it's missing that it was written to the Ephesians, but other manuscripts include it. I think it was a circuit letter. It started... It began by going to Ephesus and then it circulated from there. So, but that's And it's fascinating because, you know, I put this on there. I added some people to try to give the impression that we're talking about, the you know, the church's people and not a building. But if I just have the people there, it's like, well, for all I know, they're like watching a ball game. Or for all I know, they're, you know, doing uh, some craft or whatever the case may be. So we associate church with a building. It's almost impossible not to do that. But the church isn't a building, which I know people have heard that. But it's true. The church is the people that are called out and they become this other assembly. And in our Western culture, we get in something that looks like that kind of a building. Somebody else? Yes. I I do that very intentionally. So it's kind of cumbersome because I'll talk about the ladies meeting uh, is meeting in the church's basement. Like you know, it's not the church basement because church is people. Like I, I don't have a basement. Maybe I do. I mean, I don't know. Not that anybody would want to meet there, but but the church, the you know, this is the church's building is this. But you're the church. If you belong to Christ, you are the church. Uh, but it's the church gathered. You don't become the church when you go by yourself at home. You're not the church. You are part of the church at home, but you yourself are not the church. The church is the gathering of God's people together. In local assemblies, and uh, McGee talked about the invisible church. The invisible church is just because you're part of a local fellowship, if you really are not right with God, you don't belong to the kingdom of God. I mean, you may belong to a local fellowship, and people may greet you as if you're a Christian, but you you between you and God know you've not been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. The invisible church are the ones that God knows belong to him by virtue of faith in Christ. Sarah? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that would have been common. When a prophet showed up at a local assembly and delivered a word of the Lord, I think it was an inspired message. And uh, there was, you know, yeah. It wasn't written down. I think if God had wanted to give us more scripture than he did, I don't think he was lacking material. God saw fit to preserve what we have as Scripture. And it's uh, more than sufficient. Good question, Cindy? Um, Yes. Yes. And then the second reference in Matthew is about in chapter 18, where he talks about the discipline of the church. If you have a problem with somebody, it's one-on-one. It's one with a couple witnesses. And if they still won't respond, then you bring it before the church. (laughs) Anyone else? Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.